0: Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, is you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game podcast.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fish and Game podcast. you got your host here. Justin Townsend and uh, I'm joined by a very special guest who I'm going to introduce in just a moment uh, first off I want to give some uh, some updates about what's going on in the world of harvesting nature so real quick we, we put the finishing touches on uh, on our alligator film if you go back over to our YouTube channel and roll back a little bit you'll see that we just started our uh, adventures for food film series and released our antelope film and, and next up in the In the block, we have uh, our alligator hunt from late last year, and uh, we're going to go through that. It's going to be a great adventure. Outside of that, not real many updates for me. Doing a little flats fishing this week coming up, and uh, try to get out for some redfish and permit do a little catch and cook if I can. Hopefully, I don't jinx myself, but um, (laughs) we'll see what happens. We did recently create a Facebook community group, so go check that out, Uh, Wild Fishing Game Podcast, or Wild Fishing Game Community. that's over on Facebook. You can hit join. We'll get your info on that. And then, as always, if you like what we're putting out, you can buy us a coffee. Uh, Click the link down in the show notes. Three bucks helps us out, helps fuel those long nights of podcast editing and, and clacking away on the keyboard. So we thank you to all those supporters who have contributed. I won't spend too long on on uh, what's going on with me because we have an awesome guest, like I said. So our guest today is the author of two cookbooks. He's been featured in numerous publications, including California Waterfowl Magazine, South Carolina Waterfowl Associations, Waterfowl and Wetlands, and Cooking Wild Magazine. He is the cooking editor for Ducks Unlimited, and he hosts the show on sportsman channel called Dead Meat. Please welcome to the Harvesting Nature Wild Fishing Game podcast, the sporting chef, Scott Laceth. Welcome, sir. Good to be here. Yeah, Yes. Happy to have you. Everybody's going to learn real quick, uh, obviously, that we're going to discuss eating invasive species because I, I, looking at some of the work you've done on dead meat, some of the other things I've seen, uh, you're kind of a, a growing expert in, in this field.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so I found this is the 20 year anniversary of the Sporting Chef TV show, mm-hmm. um, which you can find on Sportsman Channel. But, you know, since we started Dead Meat seven or eight years ago, that's all anybody wants to talk about. They want to talk and nobody wants to know the best thing I've ever eaten. They want to know the worst thing. But the Dead Meat show, has it's been really cool because it's not it's not about me. It's about some of the people that we meet out there that actually like possum possum. No reason to eat possum. I'm telling you, people that tell me I really love possum, I don't think they've ever eaten chicken.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. So growing up, uh, I grew up in Oklahoma, and you know, you hear stories about all the various things people eat. And like, um, my grandmother would tell me growing up that she ate various critters. But I think, I don't know if possum ever made the list. I know raccoon was in there. She Her complaint was it was always a bit too greasy for her taste. So but possum. If you like
2: dark, stringy, greasy meat, you'll love raccoon.
1: Okay, well, that, that answers that question. Um, so outside of sort of your introduction, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of how you got into cooking uh, wild fishing game? Because you you've been doing it doing it for a while. I've you know, put, <laughs> I put you up there, put you up there, one of the greats in my book uh, for sure.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm the L.L. Bean, I think, of uh, of <laughs> cooking. Um, mine is not a well-planned career path. I was, I've, I, you know, I've always hunted and fished and cooked. And I was getting a degree in psychology and working as a bouncer at the University of Arizona. And I got an offer to be a manager in the Phoenix store. I was going to school in Tucson. I got a two-week training course on how to be a cook bartender manager, sent me to Phoenix a few years later, I was vice president of the 33 unit chain. Then I had my own restaurant in Sacramento and we would have game on the menu mm-hmm. and people would say, how come mine doesn't taste like yours? And I'd say, yeah, bring it in. So people would bring in their fishing game. We started doing game feeds. I had a catering business where we catered 40 plus chapters for Ducks Unlimited and all the different banquets. And we do a lot of game and I started on, you know, this is the 20 year anniversary of the Sporting Chef TV show. It was not a well planned career path. I feel really, really, really fortunate that I get to do what I do for a living. Um, I mean, I get to go places, cook stuff, meet people. Um, I could have never done that with my degree in psychology.
1: <laughs> you've been meeting people, but in different circumstances, for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, they're not—they're not quite so whiny when I when I'm out on the road shooting whatever.
1: <laughs> nice. Um, so, well, since you brought it up earlier, what is the best thing you've ever eaten?
2: You know, what if you know, I'll tell you, lionfish in Florida, and and you and I talked before we got started. Florida, between Florida and Texas we could fill several seasons of dead meat because there's so many invasive creatures there. Uh, the lionfish was delicious. Um, believe it or not, I just had a coyote burger in Indiana. Coyote burger. Um, I know. I-, I wasn't anxious to eat a coyote burger, but it tasted great. It. I was with a, a trapper in Indiana. He was an ex-police chief trapper. And again, you know, we get to meet really interesting mm-hmm. people. And it tasted just like any other burger. I cooked it a little bit more than medium rare just because it's coyote. Um, uh, it was so much better than the bear liver that I had in Minnesota in September. How, how, um, how
0: would
1: you describe a bear liver?
2: Uh, mealy, gritty, meaty sponge. Hmm. Um, and after I ate it, I went to the Minnesota DNR site and... Uh, it said, "Do not eat bear liver. It's so high in vitamin B, it's toxic." Oh, so um, I don't think I'm ever going to get the coronavirus simply <laughs> because I've eaten so much stuff, and I, I it wasn't all good, and I and I did have a few negative reactions here and there along the way, but um, I, I I think I've built up a pretty good
1: immunity. So whenever you're you're presented or preparing to consume any given any given meat so bear liver coyote burger whatever uh do you do you mentally psych yourself up to eat the whole meal or you just like one two bites to taste it or how does that play out
2: you know rarely do i eat a full plate of of armadillo or whatever (laughs) um i'm gonna eat a bite so you don't have to and i will let people know if i don't like it i mean the bear liver there's no way i'm gonna say boy this bear liver sure is good because then you're gonna eat a bear liver and go what the hell was lace out talking about this bear liver sucks <laughs> so i but i don't want to offend people mm-hmm. you know there are there are people that consider things okay so we're down in the texas mexico border and these really nice guys said we saved this for you it's a machito now, machito is goat, heart, liver, and lungs wrapped with goat fat and tied with goat intestines. And it was undercooked. So the fat wasn't even textural. It was just kind of soft, soft, <laughs> warm fat with a crunchy organ on the inside. And then you get to the intestine part that holds the whole thing together. Um, so, you know, the people that watch the show regularly, when I look at the camera and I go, you know, I just give them a look. They know scott did not like the machito but i don't want to offend these really nice guys mm-hmm. that were saying they were saving it for me to them it's a big deal yeah yeah you know there's there's people that like possum um i i don't you know i don't see any reason to eat it again
1: i'm definitely not one to to pick at those who like it everybody's got their taste i'm sure i eat things sometimes that people think's weird but you know what to each their own sure but i i commend you for going out and tasting so others can't as you put it or so don't have to. There we go. No, I'll, I'll just eat a bite and let you know. <laughs> That's fair. So I too enjoy lionfish too. I think uh, the first time I had lionfish, um, I was down in Bonaire in the in the Dutch Caribbean. So the ABCs and uh, they had it on the menu at a pizza shop, and so it was on a pizza. So like lionfish pesto pizza, right? And uh, uh, it was it was phenomenal. Uh, just nice white, flaky.
2: It, it really is, and you know they obviously you know they can't be lion caught. You got to be trapped or speared or whatever. And mm-hmm. and they're they're destroying the ecosystem there in Florida. And so we got to get rid of these lionfish. You know they're 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 the feral hogs of the sea. We've got to get rid of them.
1: It was uh I think it was earlier or I guess not earlier. It was mid last year that um they put out i think it was university of florida put out a lot of research they're doing with different types of uh paneling or plastics to attract them uh to try to set up bait hooks and and different things to try to figure out more productive ways to catch them because you know for those people that don't know out there like scott said you have to go out and physically spear it or you knew some or you know there's various uh tactics to do it but it mostly requires a human body going down underwater and you know if you're free diving takes a lot of training and a competent person if you're scuba diving it starts to become a little bit expensive if you're looking at the commercial side so the university trying to find a better method to commercialize this i think is a step in the right direction to try to uh get a handle on on the eradication
2: Yeah. If we could just harvest them and get them to dinner tables, I know people would eat the snot out of them because they're really, really good. Like you said, it's a Mm -hmm. light, white flaky fish. I mean, it's really, it's, I mean, it's walleye-like. It's just really good.
1: Oh, yeah. I, uh, so... One of my last restaurant gigs, I was working as a chef here in Key West uh, at a, a taco place called Mellow Cafe. And that's what I, I searched and searched for months and months to all the the fish purveyors in town trying to score a deal for lionfish. And they're like, no, as soon as it gets here, like it's out the door. Right. Right. So I was like, well... Um, if you get it in, call me, please. <laughs> so, um, and then there's there's a good spot up in uh, midways up the keys in in Marathon. It's a sushi joint. I can't think of the name of it, um, but they do a, a lionfish sushi. It's like a, a tempura, I want to say, but man, it's phenomenal. Then they take the skeleton of it, which they've also fried, and they put on top of the sushi roll. So it's oh, cool. it's a neat presentation. Yeah, right. you see it like mouth open looking at you with the you know the trimmed um fins but on top well and up in the panhandle i think it might have been Destin or
2: somewhere around there they have a uh lionfish festival every year Mm -hmm. and you know they they people are they're weighing them by the thousands of pounds or whatever and they're getting a whole bunch of fish in you just need to get a hold of some of those lionfish from the big the big feast up there
1: that's it i think that it put a little more value on the, on the culinary side and rope right. some people in a little right. like venison diplomacy saying, Hey, come try this out. You too uh, can go out. Right. So um, they do. I know they do the lionfish Derby kind of throughout the state where you enter, you send in your numbers and stuff and you get a t-shirt. I had a, a friend who placed up, I think he placed in the top uh, 50 or 25 as far as the number he caught and, on social media, it's like every day you'd see him out, and he'd be like just – he'd, you know, catch him," and you're just like, man, that's insane. So yeah, it's a cool thing. Uh, I've seen him out around um, when we're spearfishing and stuff or diving for lobster, and you'll see him. You know, I think the first one I ever saw in the wild was about the size of a half dollar, and I just kind of stumbled <laughs> on it, and I had to, like, stare at it. I was like, what is that? And I try as I got closer – I was like, well, I'm a little too close. And so I like backed up. Right. Um, and I just ended up I didn't even I don't think my spear I think it just hit it and it just I don't know if it dispersed or what, but it, it was gone after that. Uh, so we we try and we always carry a pair of shears in uh on the boat or in our die bag so we can snip those those uh the poisonous points off, which right. a lot of a lot of people don't know. Once you get rid of that, like it's you can treat it can, as a regular fish. Right. You can break it down like any other fish. We had mm-hmm. a
2: free diver in Fort Lauderdale um who can, she can free dive down to a hundred, which I can't do. Um, oh, wow. So yeah. Yeah, it was it was fun watching her.
1: I tell you, it's a you know, I'm I'm like a 30, 40 foot guy. Like that's my max. Right. But the ability of some people, you know, you got friends on the West Coast and even friends up up in Fort Lauderdale, Miami area that man they go they go so deep and for the the amount of time they're down you're just like it, i don't it's know how she, i don't know
2: how she does it she says you just have to slow down your heart rate and blah 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 and she'll just sit on the bottom at 100 um i i'm never going to be able to do that
1: mm i don't think I, I don't think it's in my uh there's something about being up super high and being down super low that there's like this middle ground that i'm very happy at <laughs> <laughs> so Um, so talking more about sort of, uh, things living in Florida, we're going to cover a lot of Florida things. Actually, I think almost everything on our list can be found in Florida in some, some accord, but, uh, chicken of the trees, the old iguana, um, no shortage of those here at my house. I, I fight them off, um, off my back deck from eating my gardens almost daily. So what was uh what was your experience with iguana
2: well i was with a guy george sarah who wrote a cookbook about cooking iguanas and his job i don't know if he's still doing it or not he um drives around Gasparilla island and shoots iguanas with 22 rat loads and pellet guns <laughs> and they fired him at one point and then all the iguanas came back again And then when they hired him back, he said he filled the back of his, he had like a mini pickup, but it's still a pickup. He filled the back of his pickup with iguanas. Um, Iguanas have got a bit of a salmonella problem. So you don't want to, you know, you want to make sure you, what we did was we boiled them first, peeled the skin. We really, I mean, they were thoroughly cooked. And to me, they don't taste like chicken. They tasted a lot like frog legs to me.
1: That's, that's, That's where I'm at with it. And I don't think
2: frog legs taste like chicken. They taste like frog legs. Yep. But that's, that's what I got out of the iguana. You can do anything you want to with them. We did tacos and tostadas and kind of the standard thing. Um, but once you cook the meat, you can strip it out and do whatever you want to with it. But you do want to make sure that you avoid that whole salmonella thing. But they're fun to hunt. We're going to go to Puerto mm-hmm. Rico this year. Um, and we're going for barracuda and iguana. I want to eat some of that puerto rican street food and see if i can build up my immunity a little bit more
1: <laughs> good good luck <laughs> i've been uh, down in puerto rico it's a, uh, it's quite the culinary adventure I'll oh yeah say. um barracuda though i mean not an evasive but um uh pretty frowned upon in in u.s culture as far as consuming it and all over the caribbean i think every island or every central american nation i've been to it's like people are all about it like, right that's it's not getting thrown back, um, which I, I don't know. Maybe people put too much merit into the Cicatera scare. They just don't know how to approach it. Right.
2: And I've I've, I've had barracuda before several times. I had no problem with it. You know, I it's not one of those fish I'm going to take home and freeze. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it's got to be on ice, bled fast, Yep, cook it that day, um, or I'd I, you know, there's some things that just don't freeze all that well. Yep. Um, One of the things that barracudas are good for is catching um, Goliath grouper. When you stick a big hook in a barracuda head, it kind of stays in there for a while, but (laughs) we did that. We did that off the dry tortugas um, with a giant barracuda that we caught. This uh, Goliath grouper kept stealing it. And so we finally buried it in the head and, um, and we finally got a got a grouper
1: out of the deal. Man, those Goliath groupers, are something else. They are such a cool. Oh yeah, there's one. Um, so I took a trip out to um to Fort Jefferson, which is the the big fort that's at Marquesas and Dry Tortugas area. A lot of people don't know it. That thing is like it's so large you can fit Yankee Stadium inside of it. Which I, right. when you're standing there, you're like, this is insane. Uh, and it's, it's what, uh, I think 45 miles or so from Key West, like just out Uh, in the middle of the ocean and, uh, out there, the park service boat pulls in and where the park service boat pulls in the dock there. And when the park service boat pulls in, there is probably a 25 foot long well i'm probably not that big i'm exaggerating but he pulls he like settles himself underneath the boat and sits in the shadow of the boat and he's just uh, massive just massive right, right right but no telling how old he is either cuz i mean to get that size you got to win a lot of battles <laughs> so
0: uh-huh.
1: as far as iguanas though to kind of circle back around you got me on barracuda um <laughs> But the, the iguanas, so we have a coconut mango, iguana taco, and we kinda do the same thing. You uh you you cook down the iguana, then you shred the meat, and then you put it into uh you put it on taco in sorry, in like a coconut coconut milk with some mango in there and then and throw it right. in a tortilla. So pretty pretty standard. People need
2: to kill and eat more iguanas. I mm-hmm. mean, there's no shortage of iguanas. No. So that's something we need to catch people to catch on to and, and start harvesting the iguanas because they taste fine and there's way too many of them.
1: Yeah. And I mean, salmonella, once you get past that, I mean, you deal with salmonella and domestic poultry all the time. So sure, it's, sure. it's, it's not a challenge we don't know how to overcome. So, right. and you know, the fun, the crazy thing is like, nobody really knows how the iguanas sort of showed up in South Florida. It's just like they were here and then, then they were everywhere. So,
2: Well, and python, iguana, peacock, bass, uh, clown knife fish, uh, snake heads, you know, the list goes on and on. It's Florida.
1: Yep, yep. I mean, we have the pretty pretty unique ecosystem here. And not to mention, we have the port of entry for all of Central and South America is passing through. And I I forget the exact statistic, but it was pretty staggering. Talk about plant species too, all kinds of things that come here and introduce bugs and eggs and all these other things. It's like the Department of Agriculture has their work cut out for them in South Florida.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you know, a lot of people, I guess they just want to dump their aquariums in the canal and see what happens. And there you go. Uh,
1: You end up with a, Twenty foot long peacock bass. <laughs>
2: uh, and you know, we were just in Florida shooting a show for the upcoming season of Dead Meat, and we did um we did wild pigs, which you you're long on too, but this mm-hmm. was in a sugarcane field around Okeechobee. And I'll tell you, I mean, we did the best pig that I've had so far up until last week was on the big island of Hawaii and we shot this guy, every afternoon, would put out a big pile of macadamia nuts for the feral hogs there. Ooh. You know, the 180-pound boar, the fat on it was solid white, wasn't off-color at all. We actually, instead of trimming all that fat off, we added the fat to the grind in some sauces that we made, which you just don't do with wild pigs, Mm-mm. especially old male pigs. Um, mm-hmm. But these sugarcane pigs that we shot last week, were crazy good. Um, we shot about a seventy-pound sow and about a 170 hundred and seventy-pound boar. And although the sow was better, as it always will be, um, yep. especially a younger one, lighter in color, there was absolutely nothing wrong with that boar. All they eat is sugar cane. Good, you know the thing about shooting them in sugar cane is you want to shoot them in the head because you don't want to you don't want to chase one. If you've never seen how thick sugar cane is. You can't go chase a pig in a sugarcane field. It's just way, way too thick. So we happened to shoot it in a a, a sugar. The sugarcane was only a couple of feet high. And so they didn't go into the tall stuff. And I also saw how you all burn the sugarcane too. That was really cool. I hadn't Mm -hmm. seen that before, set that on fire before you do whatever. But these, you know, people talk about you are what you eat, but think about it. What does a pig eat, right? A pig eats anything. And why is bacon so good? That's kind of pigs are kind of the exception to the rule. But when all they're eating is sugar cane, man, what a big, big difference.
1: Yep. I, man, it's almost like you're, uh, if you had some salt in there, you'd just be doing a brine on them already. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I mean, we, we did a little, a very simple saltwater brine and that's it. Didn't do a whole lot to it. I had a guy from Alabama, he's got uh, Bama Grill Master, I think it's his is his Instagram deal, but um, he cooked it and made it very simple, you know, wrapped it in foil with some oranges and a little mm-hmm. whatever after it was grilled, it was absolutely delicious. Oh man,
1: with the Florida oranges too, right?
2: Well, you know, we
1: had to, we had to cliche it a little <laughs> bit, so. but That's you all know, right.
2: if... You're from Oklahoma. You, if you've had them in Oklahoma, it's a different pig.
1: So much different. You know, uh, a, a lot of people, they won't eat them. They won't eat them. Right. But they're just like, nope, turn their nose up. And I'm just like, well, I, th- I think it's an important resource Like we, we need to capitalize on. So
2: We have to um, kill these pigs. We really yeah. do. You know how prolific they are. Um, and But, you know, you say they won't even eat it. I've found that a lot of people, a lot of the things that people won't eat, they've never eaten. Agreed. People that say, "Oh, I'm not going to eat that," or you know that you know, I'm the cooking editor for DU magazine, so I talked a lot of people about Waterfowl. I live in Northern California, where we've got a hundred plus day season. We can shoot seven mallards a day. It's really, really good here. Um, and people go spoonies. No, I don't eat spoonies. There's nothing wrong with spoonies. I serve them spoonies. I serve them snow geese all the time. I just don't tell them what they are until after they've eaten it. (laughs) But a lot of times we, you know, we're told it's just like the people that say I don't eat deer because I've heard it's really gamey and livery and muttony. Well, it isn't if you if you treat it right, you know. And it doesn't mean you don't make it taste like deer. It just means that you. It's. I mean, salt and pepper is all you need. Mm -hmm. Just don't overcook it, right? Yep.
1: So at at the end of the day the animal's going to take what, taste like what it's supposed to and i think we we were talking about this earlier it's like you don't it doesn't taste like chicken it tastes like frog legs like people uh, i think it's a very common thing to take a wild food and try to associate it to a domestic food when they're two different animals it's like hey here's a you know here's beef and here's chicken but my beef doesn't taste like chicken it's like well of right. course it doesn't because it's a cow Or a skier.
2: And a lot of people try and cook gamey flavors out of something. And all they're doing is make it taste more Mm -hmm. gamey. You know, if you stop cooking that duck breast at 130, it's going to taste a whole lot better than it is at 160. And people get so freaked out about, you know, they read about an E. coli outbreak at Chipotle or whatever. And they think, (laughs) I've got to cook the snot out of everything or it's not going to be safe. Yeah, you know, if a duck has flown back and forth from Canada five or six times, that's a pretty healthy animal. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, these are organic free ranging, very delicious animals. Just treat, treat certain part. You cook the necks and shoulders and shanks low and slow. You cook the more primals fast and hot. And it's very simple. You just don't need to complicate it.
1: Nope. I, I agree with you 100%. And I, I, you know, I don't know if it's, if it's some people get intimidated and just like get down this weird rabbit hole of where do I go? What do I do? Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Sort of our whole, a lot of people that have listened to this podcast over the year and, you know, all this other stuff, our thing is like, we just want to make it everybody comfortable, like eat wild game, be happy, like cook it however you want make a coyote burger make a venison burger whatever just (laughs) like just enjoy yourself like that's what it's about at the end of the day
2: you know and my whole inspiration was it was it would kill me when i would go to a consumer show and i'm in the sportsman channel or outdoor channel booth and i'm cooking whatever and i'll say here would you like a piece of venison or would you like a piece of duck and they go oh no you know i grew up on overcooked stuffed ducks that my dad would cook for about an hour and a half. They were horrible. Um, and if people, you just, you give people permission to not cook it quite so long. You come back the next year, they say, I don't get my ducks away anymore. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's the preconceived notions that people have about their wild game and they just need to give it a chance. And my whole inspiration was getting people who said, I don't like Game, whatever it is, and give them a piece and they go, Wow, that's good. Don't blame the game. I mean, there are certain times when it's just not good. hmm You know, I've had I've had beautiful mallards that looked fat and pump, and it, there's just something funky about it. And I tend to not eat stuff that tastes funky, believe it or not. At least, <laughs> at least <laughs> I know coming from me, that sounds a little odd, but um, you know, if something tastes bad i'm not gonna eat a plate of it i'll eat a bite i might eat two bites just to make sure it's as bad as i thought it was but in general game tastes really good you know pheasant and turkey doesn't taste like chicken Mm-mm. it tastes like pheasant and turkey uh,
1: yes although i will say i'm 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 not a big turkey fan I i've revealed this on a <laughs> couple episodes ago <laughs> Uh, and it's probably one of the reasons I don't hunt them as much. But I don't, I don't know. I, but like I said, to each their own. Uh, I'll sure, take that. Sure. I'll take that and put it in my back pocket. Maybe I haven't found uh the right environment to harvest the turkey that I appreciate. That I'll say that I won't say that I don't like them. I haven't found the one that I like yet.
2: And what is it that you didn't like about turkey? Because they're on the lean side, obviously. Yep, you know,
1: yep, so. Yep. So I I think that's probably it. It's a little too lean for me, and even right. compared to, even compared to other games too, or other game meat too. I just I I I don't find a lot of exciting flavors there. Like naturally, because I like to try things out, salt and pepper from the beginning, and just get the taste of the taste of the right. animal. And right. just I don't know, turkey didn't stick with me.
2: Well, and it's really lean.
1: I mean, if it's not
2: it's not tender and juicy and moist like a chicken. Mm -hmm. You know, brining and marinating helps as you know, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know how to cook. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to (laughs) try and change your mind. I'm sure you've tried it a few different times.
1: I have, uh, I'll keep it. I'll keep going. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to pass up on the opportunity to, to hunt for it or to eat it. So it's like, I I have turkey hunting plans this year, uh, for some osteola. And it's, it's, if I get one, it's going straight to the dinner table. So, uh,
2: well, and you could always give the breasts away and take the carcasses and the legs and thighs and make stock out of it because that's really good.
1: That's true. I do like that, and I've heard uh, using the legs too and braising them down and shredding the meat and doing and various. The meat. Yeah.
2: Well, otherwise you'll never get the meat off it. You can cook it you know, if you throw it on the grill. You could still beat somebody over the head with it, <laughs> and and no meat's going to fall off.
1: It's not the ones you
0: get at the fair for sure. No. no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, to sort of circle back around, um, I know that you have a couple wild hog recipes uh, that you prepared. We did a little digging. Um, Outside of your most recent experience, what's one of your favorite ways to prepare wild hog or wild pig?
2: You know, the ones that are the most challenged are the old boars. And so to me, it's critical that you trim as much fat off Mm -hmm. them as you can. Um, Get rid of all the visible fat. Then I like to cube it up, and then I'm going to put it either in a flat top or a rondo, put it in something, and render as much of that fat off as you can, and then I'm going to pour off that old boar fat. Again, you know, the 50, 75-pound sow is not such a big deal, but the challenge is the old stinky one. Even, you know, when you shoot a big big hog, it doesn't smell good when you go to throw it in the back of your truck. Um, and when you start breaking it down, it doesn't really smell all that good either. <laughs> so, um, why do we eat things that smell bad, right? Like the coyote burger. Um, and by the way, the coyote is stinky as it is when you, when you break them down, the burger itself had none of that. So I like to render as much of that fat down. I love making chili verde and chili Colorado out of older male hogs, um, Once you pour all that fat off, then I'm gonna replace it with maybe some chicken broth, some onion, celery, garlic. I'm gonna slowly cook that. It's not something you wanna eat. It's not not a a fast and Mm -hmm. hot type of recipe. And then there's still a little bit of danger of trichinosis in the wild pig. So you wanna make sure that it's cooked all the way through. So once it starts getting tender to where it starts to break down, then I'm gonna throw in tomatillos and roasted peppers and all those kinds, and cilantro, and lime, and those oh, kinds of flavors, and to me, it's not done until it just, until you just barely give it some finger pressure, and it breaks apart, then you wrap it in a fresh homemade flour tortilla, and whatever else you want to put on it.
1: Oh, I'm sold. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, man, that's so good. So why, um, I I guess we alluded to a little bit, but why why is that your preferred method for the older ones?
2: Well, because the older ones they have a they they're tougher, they're darker, the meat's darker, they're tougher, and they can be a bit aromatic even when you're cooking them. um, A lot of times, I like to get it started outdoors um, because it can stink up your kitchen. And I know people are listening, going, "Why would you want to eat something that stinks?" Because we need to kill pigs. Mm-hmm. We, we have got to kill pigs. They start breeding at six months. They do not slow down. Shoot as many of them as you can. I mean, there's reasons why all these states have got no limits, no license. Yeah. You know, no season. Shoot as many as you want. They're not supposed to be here anyway. I mean, nope. they're, for whatever reason, we got pigs um, and they're not going away. And if you've ever seen the kind of damage that pigs can do tell you the most fun I had. We did a show in Texas last year with um, a, a guy, Jimmy Galindo. He's down around college station and uh, we're shooting pigs with ARs and suppressors um, out of a golf cart on golf courses at night. <laughs> um, and, and then we'd go out on ranches and there were so many of them. You'd have your night vision on the helmet and you'd go, there's three dozen. Then you flip to your infrared scope and bap, 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 bap. We, you know, we just, we, there were, there was no shortage of them. But if you could see the kind of damage that they do to these golf courses, um, we would go there before sundown and golf course was fine. You could see where they had repaired the previous day's damage and then within an hour or two after sundown it looked like somebody took a rototiller and went across the fairway. Oh yeah. You see the kind of I, we saw we saw this guy's yard they had done $50,000 worth of landscape damage to this guy's yard. Now obviously this guy had a nice yard if they're doing $50,000 worth yeah. of damage <laughs> to the landscape it wasn't it wasn't a single wide. I mean it was a it was a <laughs> giant house on the golf course. But um I'm telling you, if you want to go, if you want to do something fun, go see Jimmy Galindo in Texas. It's really, it's incredibly inexpensive. I I don't know what, I won't quote the current price, but it was a lot cheaper than you'd pay to shoot one or two pigs. You can shoot as many as you want. He provides everything. He provides the, the ammo, the guns, the infrared, the night vision and all that. And it's a hoot, man, just to go out and shoot as many pigs as you want.
1: It's a, yeah, I have, I haven't done the, the, the night vision or infrared adventure yet, but I've, I've got, uh, Ryan and Emily, they, they work with us doing videos and stuff, and they, they're, they're on the game. And I'm just like, man, some of the stories that I've heard and some of the clips I've seen, I'm just like, this is crazy. Oh, yeah. But it's one of those things. It's like, um, I think to quote uh, we had a in our first season, we had a guest on, he's a, a wild pig trapper and he's got, you know, he does like big octagon traps where he traps, you know, 20, 30 at a time. And uh, he's like, we're, we're kind of at war um with pigs. Right. And I was like, yeah, that's to be, But I definitely think the, the value is there as a food source. And I think fine tuning on, on the human side needs to be done to figure out how to make that system work a little better
2: well and on sportsman channel i'm the executive chef for a program called uh hunt fish feed Mm -hmm. where we feed first responders and homeless folks and all that and so we've done 120 different events over the last 10 years or so where we're feeding three five six seven hundred people at a time and we're doing it a lot with wild pigs yeah we do it a lot with venison You know, in Virginia, the single largest source of protein for shelters is deer donated by hunters. Um, Texas, Oklahoma, all of these places where we can get so many pigs, uh, we get them broken down and we'll make a big pot of Chili Verde or a big pot of whatever. uh, And we use it to feed first responders and homeless folks and all that. And um, I'm all for it. It's it's a
1: great program. I think, yeah, that's an awesome program. I think we need to see more of it. And I hope, Yeah, I agree. I hope somebody influential is listening to this out there and can, can help us put that into motion.
2: <laughs> you know, in a normal year we're feeding, you know, 10 or 12 shelters. And obviously in the last year we haven't gotten to any of them. So we're hoping to get back out later on this year and get the program going again.
1: That's good. Yeah. I, I hope that that's swift. Hopefully as things progress and calm down that, that, that allows you to, to, to get back into that space for sure.
2: Well you live in Florida. Nobody wears masks in Florida.
1: <laughs> in Key West we do, it's the law.
2: <laughs> I know so, it. Oh, right, see I I thought there was no mask mandate in Florida now.
1: No, Key West, there's a uh, um yeah, there's one here in the city. right
2: around Okeechobee. No. no mask. I mean not that I saw, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I was traveling back in October and it, it definitely depended on where you were in proximity to different groups of people and stuff and who wore a right. mask and who didn't. And sometimes you would come into a town and you would go into the gas station with your mask on and everybody would look at you like you had a third set of eyes and just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I but, was at an
2: unnamed unnamed town in Idaho um, in December and met a buddy of mine. We were shooting Sporting Chef and a buddy of mine was duck hunting up there. And he said, let's meet at the steakhouse. And it's a big country western looking steakhouse and i walked in and i was the only one wearing a mask um servers bartenders everybody nobody had masks on
1: oh wow well
2: hadn't heard about any outbreaks in this particular town either and um you know some of the smaller towns where we we turtle hunted so i saw you had you had jenny wheatley as a as a guest right
1: yeah just just uh just a couple weeks ago the episode actually came out today as we're recording this oh Uh, cool so yeah, mean Jenny was on the so, podcast and her husband as well.
2: Right, right. And they Rick and and Jenny introduced me to these turtle hunters in um uh Cedar Rapids, Nebraska. Population 336. Oh wow. So we did a we did a turtle hunt with these guys and um have you I have you eaten turtle?
1: I have eaten turtle. Yeah. This, you know,
2: the biggest problem with turtle is cleaning them. Um, yep. These were 25 to 30 pound snappers. These This was like eight brothers. They take pitchforks and they go into this really funky swamp and they just go back and forth with the pitchforks from one side to the other. They, and then when, they, they, hit it, when yeah. they hit what feels like a turtle shell, they reach down and grab them. Oh. And the grandfather has told every one of those kids, turtles don't bite when they're in the water. And every one of those kids has been bit. By turtles when they're underwater, it was his grandpa's <laughs> joke. But um, uh, you know, and turtles—they're just a mess to clean, but the, the meat's pretty good.
1: Yeah, uh, it's kind of the—I don't know—not a bit, not a fan of cleaning them. Just as you said no the mess. no i'd rather
2: if somebody handed me a bag of turtle meat and i yep. didn't have to clean them.
1: yep i'm i'm a fan of uh so i went to college and and cooked in new orleans and turtle soup is very sure traditional uh item on many of the classic restaurants in new orleans and love turtle soup not not cleaning them though so no yeah. no no
2: and turtle soup a little sherry on top oh yes absolutely yeah, yep, I got it. yeah yep. you gotta do
1: that yeah <laughs> um No, that's cool. I think I saw some, uh, maybe some social media posts or footage when you guys were up there uh, with the turtles. And when I think back to when I was a kid, and we would we would go out. That was sort of like a hobby we had. You know, in the middle of the year when you are not hunting or fishing, like we would go out and we would find turtles, just like box turtles, snapping turtles, like the red ear turtles. But I remember at several points throughout my childhood memories of us being either waist or chest deep wading through. You know, ponds of murky water trying to find turtles. Right. Probably not the best idea of, of other things <laughs> that we would find out there. And yeah, we had the saying as far as snapping turtles. It was like, I can't remember the exact saying now, but it's essentially like once once they get bit, they won't let go, or once they bite you, they won't let go till the lightning strikes or like something crazy like that. And, uh,
2: well, you know, and cleaning them with these big snappers, the part, that we didn't we didn't want to get too graphic on TV, but you grab their their head, you grab their mouth with a pair of pliers and pull it out, and mm-hmm. then somebody cuts the head off.
1: Yep, like a hatchet or a machete or right, what have you? you yeah, you, I mean you don't have to show that
2: on TV, I guess.
1: But no, you know. <laughs> I mean we we told the story. That's good. People can get the picture. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, um, yeah, I- interesting stuff, but uh, sort of. Thinking about back in the world of invasives, uh, Snakehead. Um, big, big problem. You look like Florida area. We've got them coming in now. Uh, oddly enough, Chesapeake Bay tributaries and places up in Maryland. It's it's a huge problem. And uh, I was first introduced to him. We had a field staff writer that lived uh, up in Maryland, and he put out a I'll caveat this to say that I know the dangers of, of eating freshwater fish this way, but I'm going to say it and then I'll follow it up with what we did or what he did different uh, snakehead ceviche. but you did like a hard multi-day freeze on it, you know, getting rid of parasites, all the other things, the creepy crawlies that live in freshwater fish. So, uh, was, that was the big reaction when we put the recipe up. People were like, "What are you doing?" And we're like, Whoa. Right, like right. We, "We understand. We, we mitigated it. We're all still alive. Nobody's got parasites. So I think we're good to go." Um. So yeah, snakehead ceviche. But uh, what what was your experience with uh with snakehead?
2: Well, we caught them closer to you. We caught them off the Ever- the canals off outside the Everglades around Fort Lauderdale, and I they're great fighters. They're so much fun to catch. You know, they're, especially on top water. I had a hoot catching these things. They're really hard to kill. I buried a knife in the skull on one of them. I'm trying to put it to sleep and it wouldn't die. I mean, I almost split his head in half and it still wouldn't die. I ended up sticking sticking it in the freezer um, and just left it in there for a while um, and the ones in Florida aren't quite as big as the ones up around the Potomac and Chesapeake. I've got a buddy up there that's got them in his backyard and they're bigger. but they're really they're fun to catch. They're toothy. Um, you know, they're kind of creepy looking obviously, because mm-hmm. they got the teeth and the whole thing. Um, but they are just delicious. I thought the snakeheads were really good eaten. Um, and I've found them in Asian markets and um, in, fr- in the frozen section of Asian markets in California. But that's about it, um, you know. I don't know how they got here, but um, they're and I, you yeah, know they I were know. saying that they were they were going to destroy the ecosystem and because of they're competing with the other good fish and all that. I don't know that that's really a problem. I think people are having a good time catching them now.
1: Yeah, and I mean it doesn't seem you know you have them in these two areas, and obviously people talk about the negative impacts of any invasive species. But if you get down to like the microscopic level not doing much damage like it's here like it's always a big question for me it's like at what point do we look at does a invasive species sort of become naturalized or you know all that and we we, we've got animals that we brought from other continents in the u.s and in different populations uh in spots across the u.s it's just like maybe snakehead don't move past florida maybe they don't move out of the chesapeake tributaries like maybe they're just there and then it becomes well this is where you go when you want snakehead so right i, I think uh, do you have do you have
2: nutria in florida
1: um i have never seen them i'm trying to think if i've heard of them um you know louisiana uh right. honestly present I, I i would think but I, I don't know 100%
2: because we they were in oregon we have them in california now Okay. In California, you know, all the worst things in the United States start in New York and California, <laughs> and then they just and then they just infect the rest of the country. <laughs> so, fish and game here won't let us kill nutria. Huh? They want to do it themselves, which means soon we'll have an explosion of nutria here. Yep. Um, I don't know how they got here. They're up in Maryland too. You know, for people that don't know, it's about a twenty-pound rat that. Started in Louisiana in the twenties, the McElhaney Tabasco people brought them in for the fur trade. Yep, and nobody wanted nobody wanted to wear a rat. And so, between uh, tornadoes and and human events, they escaped and and they're vegetarian, so they eat all the veg, uh, the vegetation on the levees and erode the wetlands and compromised you know the levees and the wetlands. And in Louisiana, if you're a resident, you sign up for this deal and it, you bring in, I think it's the last seven inches of tail and they give you five bucks. So people would just go out. We were in Venice, Louisiana, and people mm-hmm. would just go out and they'd whack a bunch of them, cut the tail off and leave the rest to feed the gators. Yeah. But they were, and I could, I had a real hard time in Venice getting people to eat
1: some. Which is interesting because in new orleans in the city that's who you envision that's who's eating nutria or people down in venice or people in the bayous and I, I know that's a very stereotypical thing to say but it's like that's right. a that's a, a common thought amongst a lot of people is they're like oh yeah nutria people eat nutria down there you are like if no, i want to see nutria i go to the zoo or over to jefferson parish or you know wherever like yeah, yeah, they sure. don't
2: eat they don't eat new trats there, but you know, in in New Orleans, you see them in the in the canals, and you see them in the and yep. all the little ditches and stuff. And I, they, it's just a big rat.
1: I remember when I was in college, like the the sheriff of Jefferson Parish, which you have uh, Orleans Parish and Jefferson Parish is next over, still like very highly populated metropolitan area and. They were leading like this campaign of basically like deputies and people driving around at night shooting nutrient out of the levees like uh, uh, in uh, populated uh. areas and I was just like, well, right. I guess this is a problem <laughs>
2: it, it definitely is a problem but and i and I you know you've got the python thing in yep. Florida too, and I saw the swamp people or whatever did a big thing didn't they do they did a big roundup in the everglades for python
1: yep so uh it's funny because i was just talking about this story uh so i guess it was a, a couple years back um florida or the university or somebody brought a bunch of experts over from somewhere in asia southeast asia or central asia or india to like do a roundup on pythons in the everglades and they went out there and got skunked and then so did we yeah, <laughs> and then they brought the the guys down from like up in the Panhandle and over in Louisiana and all that, and it's like boom, they just cleaned up, and it's just like wow. Okay, well, well, and um, if you think
2: about how big the Everglades are, finding a snake in the Everglades is like a needle in the haystack. I mean, I'm I'm surprised that they found as many as they did. Oh yeah, um, we were told, man, there's not a dog inside or a deer fawn in sight. They're eating everything. And I was, you know, I was a little, I had mixed feelings about whether I wanted to run into one when I was looking through the bushes or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did, you know, we, we, we had what we cooked them. Um, the people there that we were with, uh, they had a, a, a live one. What we don't do is stick one in the bushes and act like we caught it. No, um, we're not, we're not going to do that. If we don't get one, we don't get one. Um, but they're not good eating. It's not like a rattlesnake.
1: Yeah, I, man, I, I have so many emotions. I, we were talking about this before the show, and sort of uh, some recent news articles that came out where like the governor and the FWC commission, and uh, we're having conversations about like one. Can we commoditize? I think that's a word. Yeah. Anyway, we'll call it a it word is, tonight. It is now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can we? Can we commercialize uh, Python meat and? my first instinct is one, you got to convince people to buy this, uh, which I don't know how you're going to do that. And two, there's been a lot of studies out about high mercury levels. and right. They're not sure how the elevated mercury levels are getting there. I think right. the le- the leading theory being that these snakes aren't used to living in habitats where the mercury is present. So they have no way to dispel it. So it's just kind of building up. Um, but in the same article, I'm referencing. They're talking with a uh, a python hunter, and she's raving about this meat. Uh, no, uh-uh, <laughs> She's lying. <laughs> it's the best thing ever, and that's she loves to eat it. Uh, and uh-uh. she uses she uses the eggs to bake with, which that uh. <laughs> she lost me. I was like, uh, I I'm. I'm very supportive of a lot of things in the wild world and eating things, sure. but I don't, know, I don't know how I feel about using python eggs to throw in my raisin muffins.
2: Well, and it's not, an, not going to be like a chicken egg. Mm-mm. I mean, it's a, it, they give live birth, right? So the egg is going to yep. have a little snake in there. And what I've found um, is that it's so incredibly tough I mean, I wailed on it with a mallet. I ran it through a cuber. And even then, you'd start chewing it, and it just got bigger. It Oof. just wasn't it wasn't good. Um, I don't see any reason to eat python. I mean, I'm sure if you want to make some boots out of it, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But eating it was a whole different deal. We had a guy, um, our airboat guy, our guide there, made uh, uh, cheese, uh, cheese grits and python. Huh. so the grits were good but you just tried to work around the python part and eat the grits and um again i i cooked some myself i you can actually buy it mm-hmm. um it's it's not it's just not good
1: man and i i i want i want it to be good so that more people are <laughs> are, are uh interested in in going out i mean it's not an easy task to to go out and and find them either you know i i've I've hunted around the everglades uh you know in big Cypress and some of the other wildlife management areas adjacent to the everglades and it's like never never seen one out in the wild um not even like crossing the road at night as you're driving and it's just I, i don't know
2: And that's when you, when, where we were looking for them is, you know, the sun goes down, they want to go out and warm up Mm -hmm. and they'll go out on the roads and hopefully retain some heat that way. But I mean, we, we just never, we didn't, we didn't find one, but I did, I held a 10 foot Python and it's, it's like no other muscle you've ever felt. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, It's not like a rattlesnake. It's not tender even a little bit.
1: No. Big animals too, and I tell everybody, be careful if you do decide to eat them like the the whole mercury thing is no joke based on some right. of the I dug into the scientific journals and uh went down a couple rabbit holes on that, but yeah it's a it's some interesting stuff but um let's see maybe we kind of hit on i think we hit on a lot of the the high notes of of some primary invasive species i think the only one that we didn't hit on was carp uh asian carp specifically asian carp yep we've done Um, that what what was your experience with asian carp
2: well we were on the illinois river in peoria illinois and if you've seen the videos where you go down in a boat and there's carp lying out of the water and hitting you in the head and all that it's exactly like that um and and so you're shooting them with bows you go down the river and they you see a few of them start to jump up Then you do hard circles in the boat, and it kind of stirs them up. And by the way, in Asia, they don't jump out of the water. They go down. For some reason in the U.S., they fly out of the water. So um, while you're trying to shoot them, while you're trying to shoot a flying object with a bow as you're doing hard circles, it's not a very good percentage shot. We put a lot (laughs) of arrows in the air, and we had about 25 of them jump in the boat, but I think we only shot three of them. (laughs) <laughs> out of the, out of out of all of the all, all these fish. But the cool thing is, we were with a guy from Chicago who the weird thing is when you open them up to clean them, they're filter feeders. You know, mm-hmm. they eat plankton. And so when you open them up, all this green liquid junk came out of them that I've never seen on the inside of a fish before. Is this olive drab looking liquid? And I'm assuming it's because they're plankton eaters. I don't know. Yeah. But huh. Uh, um so so they can't be lying, caught right you're shooting them with bows he took them and he just took the skin off some of the bloodline left the bones in and then ground the whole side ran it through a grinder did a big plate small plate made fish cakes out of it tasted 100 just fine um they they have a milder flavor than the common carp anyway mm-hmm. you know it's a lighter flesh fish it's more like a grass carp type of deal and um so for the people, I'm I, I, so I tried this. We have American shad here in California, and and they're bigger. You know, they're mm-hmm. foot plus long. It's not they're not bait. It's a it's a it's a fish, but they're really bony. So most people don't keep them. I did the same thing with these shad this year. I ran it through a grinder, made fish cakes out of them. It was really good. I mean, the bones just turn into nothing. They're calcium, mm-hmm. um, but. If we can get more people to eat those invasive Asian yeah. carp that's a good thing too. They're going to get into Lake Michigan in in Chicago and the Chicago River they have an electronic barrier electric barrier that's supposed to keep them from going into Lake Michigan but nobody thinks that's going to last forever and once they're there you're not going you're not going to get rid of them.
1: Oh man. Yeah. I I I would like to see more people eating that too. I've heard of people uh, pickling the meat cuz like the Yeah. The- the vinegar dissolving the bones and stuff like that. Kind of the same with pike and things they do. Right. right. And I've heard people just frying it and kind of eating it off the bone, like scraping it off uh, with your teeth as you go. But I've heard a lot of bones. Yeah. But
2: yeah, the grinder, the grinder method, I'm telling you, worked just fine. And I'm,
1: I'm a fan of that. That sounds yeah, good. Yeah. I like a good fish cake too. When in doubt, make fish cakes, right? <laughs> That's it.
2: So we did that. We in, in Florida, we shot mudfish. Are you familiar with grenel mudfish? Uh, I'm not, no. Super soft. We were bow fishing for uh, Garb somewhere around Orlando. And our guide, um, um, Ed McCormick, with Bikini Bow Fishing around Crystal River, we we're, we're going to do our fifth show with this guy. I mean, we don't do shows with like you know, over, and we try and get new people every time, but mm-hmm. Ed, um, Ed keeps putting us on these really cool things, so this mudfish, um and I know there's people listening that have had mudfish before, it's the softest fish I've ever seen, I, apparently you're supposed to clean it immediately, I put it on ice for a few hours, when I went, to, when I went to break it down, um the fillets were like fish pudding it would have been better off Ooh. right i saw the expression on your face Ooh. it would have been better off cleaning it with a spoon huh. i took it to a guy in somewhere around tampa and he made fish cakes out of it tasted like fish cakes but by itself you're thinking there's no way i'm going to eat this it's so so very soft it was not i i don't need that i don't need oh. to do that again
1: yeah yeah, it, it reminded me of, uh, I think it's out in on Hawaii and stop me if you've, you've had this experience, but bone fish, uh, oh, yeah. like people freezing the meat and letting it get kind of that mushy consistency and then scraping it with a spoon and making either fish cakes or like burger patties or like whatever. And I'm just like, huh, it's such a, you know, <laughs> I, I, I've lived a, a life of eating mostly like firm flaky fish, not, not right. as much, uh. Not as much bones or, or fish pudding.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever kept a bonefish. I mean, bonefish are a hoot to catch, but I don't think yeah. I've ever kept one.
1: I mean, yeah. and that's that's the common thing. In some places you can't. Like Florida, you can't keep them. Right, um, right. You know, but uh, the places that you can, I, I don't know that a lot of people do, but that was an interesting concept when I heard it. I was like, huh. So it was a cool story. but
2: You know, people eat lots of things that I don't eat. <laughs> yeah
1: well I don't know your list is getting smaller
2: (laughs) (laughs) we're we're, you know we're not gonna run out of stuff so this year where we were supposed to go to Europe um, for dead meat international but we're not able to travel at least we can't count on it We're eventually we're gonna get to Norway to do beluga whale okay Um, actually it's a thing there and they harvest them most of it goes to Japan but you can go to Norway on the menu you can see beluga whale Um, Then we're going to go to the UK and shoot a bunch of those wild deer that they have there. You know, if you're fortunate enough to own a gun in the UK, you can't shoot it anywhere. Um, and then pigs in Spain and a few other things, but, um, we just, we got to get out of here. We need to, we need to get out of the country.
1: Yeah. I try. There's a whole world of of wild food out there. Whole whole world of stuff. People don't want to eat. (laughs) Well, uh, I, I think the clock is winding down. So, uh, I appreciate you coming in and chatting with us. I have enjoyed the conversation tonight for sure. Sure. What's, uh, what's the best way for people to, to connect with you if they want to reach out with questions or, uh, anything like that.
2: Uh, just go to sportingchef.com. That's where all the free recipes are there. You can see where our podcast is and, Mm -hmm. and find out all about the shows. There sportsman channel and outdoor channel has info about the shows. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is in a normal year, this is what I do. So, um, again, I'm very fortunate to be able to get out there and do these kind of things.
1: Awesome. Well, we always give, uh, give our guests and normally we're joined by others, but tonight we just had the one-on-one, uh, kind of a, a moment for a last thought to sort of share with the, with the listeners out there. So, uh, being the guest, uh, if you have a last thought or anything,
2: shoot as many, pigs as humanly possible. Um, they're a problem. Catch lionfish, shoot pigs, shoot iguanas, kill them and eat them. Um, and if you can, if you can make a, uh, if you can feed your first responders in your neighborhood with a good pot of wild pig, chili verde, to me, that's a victory.
1: I, I echo that. I support this message 100%. <laughs> All so, right. um, no, I, I, I echo it too. I think when, uh, we sort of connected the dots before the show, uh, about the, the importance of evasive eating invasive species and the opportunity to talk about it. And that's kind of something we definitely harp on, uh, a lot is, is be an opportunistic omnivore as many other animals in the natural world are. And, and, uh, when the opportunity arises, take it. But if you're going out to be strategic about what you're hunting and fishing and eating, then, choosing the vases is a good way to go about because one you, you you get food to bring home and two you get to feel good that you're doing something to help out the natural world
2: and in the case of pigs in a lot of places you can after when you get all depressed about deer and duck season being over you can go out and shoot those all year long
1: yeah that's true that is very true um well outside of that uh I want to thank everybody for listening and and as always uh, show notes will be available online and you can go down and scroll through a lot of the great recipes we talked about tonight and videos and all the links we'll throw in there and head over to social media. Uh, Make sure you're following the sporting chef in the various social media platforms. And when you're done there, make sure you're definitely following us, which you should be. uh, So you can see all the great things we're doing as well. And then, uh, Whatever podcast platform you listen to, punch that five-star button. Tell us what we're doing wrong. Tell us what we're doing right. Uh, Thanks, everybody. Have a good night.